Hi, listeners. It's hard to believe, but New Frontiers in Functional Medicine has been going strong since 2015. With over 200 episodes and over 2 million listens, we are growing every year. My goal is to continue to bring you the best minds in functional medicine, epigenetics, and longevity. I want the content to be actionable for the functional medicine clinician and interesting for the rest of us. Thank you for supporting this podcast with your likes, with your honest reviews, with sharing the episodes with uh, your friends and family. And if you haven't done so, please consider leaving a like or leaving us an honest review wherever you've accessed this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our sponsors. Because of our sponsors, these are companies that I trust, that we vet carefully, that we use in clinical practice, that I use personally. Because of them, everything associated with this podcast is free. If you haven't done so, I suggest you head over to drcarafitzgerald.com to the podcast page where you can access the full transcript for every single one of these 200 episodes. And along with that transcript, you'll get an episode summary. You can get the research citations and additional content that is pertinent to the episode. I myself return to the transcript page all the time to pull out a little snippet of information that I want to recall or access a citation. Or better yet, sign up for our newsletter again at drcarafitzgerald.com and every single podcast episode will drop in your uh, email as soon as it's released. Thanks again. Thank you to our Diamond Level sponsors, Biotics Research, Rupa Health, and Integrative Therapeutics. For over 40 years, the foundation of Biotics Research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged, innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness. They're available exclusively to healthcare providers. Find them at bioticsresearch.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Rupa Health. They make lab testing easy, fabulous, doable for you, the clinician, and for you, the patient. Consider using Rupa as your super, super, super smart solution to all things laboratory testing. Visit them at rupahealth.com. For over 35 years, patients and clinicians have trusted integrative therapeutics for their dedication to quality, potency, and accuracy, and for bringing us exclusive products backed by science. From sourcing of premium raw materials to their meticulous manufacturing processes, they prioritize consistency, efficacy, and safety because our patients deserve nothing less. Find them at integrativepro.com. That's integrativepro.com. Thanks to our gold sponsors, Timeline, Mira, and OneSkin. Timeline, fueling cellular energy for a lifetime of healthy aging. Find them at TimelineNutrition.com. Mira, the most trusted hormone monitor. Find them at MiraCare.com. And OneSkin, skin age reversal technology. Find them at OneSkin.co. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am really 
thrilled to be spending some time with Dr. Nathan Price. Let me tell you all about him and we will jump right into uh, this really cool podcast. Uh, Nathan is Chief Scientific Officer of Thorne Health Tech and author of The Age of Scientific Wellness. Uh, previously, he was CEO of Longevity, an AI intelligence company that merged with Thorne. In 2019, he was named as one of the 10 emerging leaders in health and medicine by the National Academy of Medicine. And in 2021, he was appointed to the Board on Life Sciences of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Uh, he has spent much of his career, or his early career, as a professor and associate director of the Institute for Systems Biology, um, co-director with biotechnology pioneer Lee Hood of the Hood Price Lab for Systems Biomedicine, and is affiliate faculty at the University of Washington in bioengineering and computer science and engineering. He's done a ton of stuff, basically. Um, he co-founded Araval after the um, Institute of Systems Biology, and he received a Healthy Longevity Catalyst Award from the National Academy of Medicine in 2020. He's got a ton of peer-reviewed scientific publications. You can get some of them in free full text, and I recommend that you do. In fact, we'll link some of them in our show notes. Um, the, quite influence. In, you've been influential in my thinking, Nathan. Um, he was also uh, chair of the NIH study section on modeling and analysis of biological systems and is a fellow of the American Institute for Biological and Medical Engineering. That's a mouthful. Dr. Price, welcome to New Frontiers. <laughs> so much. So, great. <laughs> <laughs> so I've known you for a while. I've seen you speak many times. And, you know, you and I were just reflecting a little bit on um, your work at the Institute for Systems of Biology. And, you know, I'm in functional medicine. I've been on a faculty at functional medicine for at the Institute for Functional Medicine for a long time. And, you know, we sort of pride ourselves in, in being the clinical application of systems medicine or systems biology. Like we like to think through that big lens. And I'm so glad that you've embraced us and that you've embraced functional medicine. I remember stumbling upon the Institute of systems biology many years ago and just being a little bit intimidated and overwhelmed, but also really excited that this systems thinking was in fact happening. And so I wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, about that and about how you came to that, but also too, you know, you obviously discovered functional medicine and you must've been like, wow, there's actually people trying to apply this, you know, clinically. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a great uh, example, Cara, because it's like, um, yeah, I came from this from the standpoint of like a hardcore scientist, right? So we're building computer models and we're diving in and it's all, you know, NIH grants and and just building that out. And as I got more and more interested in applications and we became aware of uh, functional medicine, I was in Seattle at the time. So yeah. IFM is there and, you know, we became, you know, became friends with Jeff Bland and, you know, I could go on for, you know, and, and all and, of us. And then, <laughs> yeah, I could do and. <laughs> Um, Laurie Hoffman and anyway, on and on and on. And so, uh, and so with so many uh, people, and it was interesting because we were very intrigued by this notion that, oh, there's a bunch of doctors that believe as we were coming to really believe in prevention over treatment uh, system, you know, obviously systems approaches where you're taking complexity, you're trying to personalize that to the individual. And it was interesting too, because we got, um, we got pushback on some of this too, as you probably won't, you know, won't be, 
uh, surprised by, you know, because you're very traditional doctors, they would kind of look askance at this stuff, right? They're like, well, you know, they don't have the right clinical trials and they don't have the, you know, whatever. And this is somewhat anecdotal, but I'll just share it because I started going to functional medicine meetings and I'd go to traditional doctor meetings and they'd be like, oh, you know, the science is all here and it's not there. And I would say things like, you know what, though, when I go to a functional medicine meeting, everyone looks amazing. Everyone looks super happy. They, you know, I, I got pulled out in one of these meetings at IFM, like onto a dance floor, which I rarely, rarely do. <laughs> so I'm dancing around like with, you know, Mark Hyman is there and I'm like, that dude has glowing skin. Like he looks really healthy for his age. and all the other people that were there. And, and, you know, and so I've said that on a number of occasions. I'm like, well, you know, it looks like something right is going on over there because you see that it's working. And as I've gotten more and more into this space, I've become very, very interested in how much personalization really matters. And I'm still, obviously, I'm a huge proponent of randomized clinical trials and scientific evidence and all this. We can get into that. But I think there are ways to really merge personalization in really deep ways, especially as we get into our AI conversations. You know, that is the kind of thing that lets us get really deep personalized evidence, but also taking this fundamental approach because we know that that one solution almost never works. But if you think about things deeply and you take a systems approach, you usually can have a benefit. And so it was just really fun to get into this world. And I've made so many friends in it and it's been uh, just fantastic for me. That's awesome. Well, I'm so glad you drank the extremely healthy Kool-Aid and that you extremely joined our... <laughs> I'm so glad no that you Kool-Aid joined our... functional medicine. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. Of course, functional medicine has a long history of being challenged, but systems medicine, I mean, just the movement towards systems biology, thinking of being as whole and being an environment as whole. I mean, you guys had to have gotten some pushback also, like this movement sure. to this expanded thinking is disruptive. And so, of course, if you go to a more traditional model where, you know, there's kind of single variable interventions and, you know, one molecular pathway, et cetera, um, it's going to shake things up. There's no doubt. And in fact, pushback is is one of the signs that you're on the right track. It's not the only sign. You can get pushback on stupid ideas too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you more than that. It's yeah. not the only sign. But it is usually a sign that you're doing something new. Um, I remember when we when we first did, and you know, we're gonna get into this Pioneer 100 study that we did. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, there was a big write-up about it in science. And the headline. I forget exactly what it was, but the headline was something like controversial or, you know, something like this. And I, and, and I, in my immediate response, I'm like, why not pioneering or <laughs> spectacular or first of its kind? Or, and I was, and I was speaking actually at a pharma company uh, when it came out. Uh, and it was interesting uh, because one of the executives there uh, said something to me, like, he's like, that's what you want. He said, you know, if it's all positive, it means everyone agrees with you and it's not anything important. And it really kind of made wow. me think about it. that actually he's like, no, that means you did something that was important because uh, you know, he's like, that's how, you know. And so I, I really, <laughs> I appreciated cool. that comment from him, you know, and, and yeah. it was interesting because there's so many people, even in the form, you know, and we tend to, you know, there tends to be a schism between, you know, people. There's a lot of people in that world who really buy into the kind of stuff we're doing and, and love it. You know, that, that machine yeah. isn't set up necessarily for it all the time. Yeah. It does thing, but you know, but tons of people in there really love this kind of stuff. Too. Well, and there's some pretty cool science coming out looking at um, 
sort of food-based compounds. I know like there's urolithin A is a molecule that I'm interested in and, and kind of applying that pharma lens on it. It's, it's, it, so we can use the power, like since minds are beginning to expand, we can kind of use the power of their resources and their thinking and investigate, you know, molecules that we know in our space are, are important. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, and, you know, and in terms of like Thorn, where I'm at now, like that's kind of our mantra, which is we want to bring the same level of rigor and science of the pharma and biotech space, but to the preventive space. And I think there's a lot of yeah. us that think that way. Because on its face, the notion that you can pull valuable molecules, interventions, and so forth from the natural world is sort of obvious, right? It's like, how could that yeah. not be? And, and so, but you want to do that in a deep way, right? And that's what really systems biology, what, what functional medicine uh, is it, you know, aims at and so forth is that, where we can take so many of those. And I really think about that as it's really like your first line pharmacy, right? A natural pharmacy. Because if, if you're having a problem, right? There's this notion that, well, what first can I look at in my lifestyle that makes a difference? Uh, you know, on top of that level, well, what is there in the natural world that might make a difference? And then if that doesn't work, then, you know, you get yourself maybe more into a, you know, pharmaceutical or that kind of you know, intervention strategies. I remember when you were recruiting for the Pioneer 100 study, we're going to talk about this. You did this at the Institute for Systems Biology, and um, I've tried, you know, gallantly to get on to be one of those 100. And I don't know, I was after it filled up pretty darn quickly. And, and yeah, I know just a few extra people. It was eventually 108. We should was oh, it? Oh, I should have begged. <laughs> we were just meeting back then. We would have, would have loved to have had you. It was so exciting. You, you were so exciting to me because we've been thinking through this systems lens, like we're doing our darndest to think through it. And to see you actually begin to bring that to fruition was um, just really exciting for those of us who've been trying to do this in clinical practice. But you're using AI tools and we're going to talk about that more. You're sort of using where, where we all want to be. You're kind of vetting that technology and figuring it out for us. You actually, and you can talk about this you were losing a lot of the labs that you know that we use in clinical practice now but you were just using this this kind of bigger lens to investigate and it was terribly exciting so tell me about the pioneer 100 project and what you guys learned and and you know we'll go on from there and what you've done you know since yeah so the pioneer Pro 100 project is something that lee hood and i initiated about 10 years ago and the idea was that as we think about scientific wellness which is, you know, in our, in our language, which is the notion that we want to bring the same level of depth to the understanding of wellness states that we have to disease historically. And one of the big aspects of that is you've got to generate all this longitudinal data on people who are by and large healthy. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into all the kind of things we've learned off that. Um, I will say there was a ton of pushback against this idea, like to a degree yeah. that I found totally irrational. Um, yeah. But people really didn't like it. And one of the big criticisms was that this was a giant waste of time because they said, look, if you don't have a an arm that is full of disease, right, to do the case control analysis, it's totally worthless. And that was that was a pretty general view. I was surprised by how vehemently people seem to hold that because I'm like, I'm wasting my life. I'm not wasting your life. Like, what, if it fails, yeah. it's, it's on me. Yeah, so what's not, the threat? What's what's the threat? You know, oh, I, but. Uh, so the Pioneer 100, but what we really had to get into then is, right, let's just get a general population. So we got, you know, 100 or so people, uh, mostly in the Seattle area. There were a few smatterings of people elsewhere. 
and took them through a journey where we said, all right, let's go through. And we measure a lot of the different labs that you would measure. I think it was about 100 to 150 of them. And then we measured uh, proteomics out of the blood, metabolomics out of the blood. Um, we did uh, microbiome uh, sequencing um, out of stool. And we were doing that on a, on a every three-month cadence. Uh, we also had wearable devices that people uh, had. And then we had health coaches that would walk them through, like, how do you make improvements in your life? And we kept track of all of those kinds of things. Now, what came out of that was that we were able to show that people were able to improve their health markedly by going through such a program. And at the same time, we started generating this massive data. And we were really thoughtful about how we did the collections how we standardize collections in time and space, which we could get into. Like that might, I don't know, it's a little wonky if we go through that, but you know, there was a huge uh, system that, that went through to enable that. And what it meant, and I think why so many functional medicine uh, doctors and, and people in that space got so excited about it, is that it started to build this layer of information that we could put underneath really personalized interventions and start tying them to really deep science and tons of molecular measurements that at the time, no one had ever measured this many things on a population of people. And so from that standpoint, you know, we called everyone in the Pioneer 100 pioneers because they were the first people who were going through uh, this uh, kind of approach. And the vast majority of individuals allowed us to use those, use those data for scientific discovery. And we've, we've continued to publish, you know, paper after paper after paper on them. We still are to this day. Um, and so it's, uh, that was, uh, I think, an incredible gift to, to science to be able to enable that to happen. And controlling for time and space, just like the timing of the collection and the location, like just taking into consideration that, you know, diurnal variation or like weather change like were you considering all of that location all of the all of those kind of things wow that's so, amazing that's amazing actually yeah and so some of the ways you have to deal with it so people and i had spent a lot of time in my lab earlier particularly with transcriptomics studying these we, we have a ton of papers on it because you can often predict the lab that makes a set of measurements better than the condition wow. and, <laughs> I used wow. to give this little talk where we'd have this cloud of points and we'd separate that and we'd see like, okay, clearly this is cancer and non-cancer. And then I would say, I just lied to you. This is lab one and lab That's two. That's Joe. That's Joe's lab over there. Lab one, cancer at <laughs> lab one. And this is normal and cancer in lab two. And, you know, you don't, and then you do the second mode and a principal component analysis, you know, decomposition, and then it would start separating out. So, so there's all of these effects and we don't know what causes all of them. There's just many factors and you listed a number. You know, where are you at? What's the humidity? Uh, what's, you know, the environment in the room? Are there little differences in how somebody, pipe, you know, just uh, yeah. there's a things. So what we actually did was to build a system such that when all of the vendors and all the different places where we would do measurements, we would spike in controls into every single one of those. So we would normalize them against something that we knew. So we actually had these big mixed bats, vats of blood and we, would and we would split them and we would store them at each of the different locations where measurements were done so you could spike those in. And then there were tons of algorithms on the back end that would control so that your proteomics that you did in, you know, this is getting a little bit further downstream when we had the company, but you were doing on the, you know, in South Carolina at 2 p.m. versus the ones that you had that you ran in Southern California at, 
you know, from a group in Southern California spread around, you know, in the morning or the evening or whatever it was. And then all of that was tracked. And in fact, one of the big blood measurement companies had a, had a, a, a spot on the board of Aravel, this, you know, subsequent company, um, mostly just so, for that, so that they could see all of the things that we had done with their data and these other data types in terms of standardizing it and seeing how consistent are these place to place, location to location, time to time and so forth. That's fascinating. You know, when we did our study out of the um, National College of Natural Medicine, um, I consulted, Moshe Seth was, was an author and just as a, consult, a consultant for me, a, a mentor as a, you know, epigeneticist extraordinaire. And he said that same thing to us. He, got, he said, you have to run the study. You can't do it you know, remotely, you just really need to run it in one location because, you know, DNA methylation is so sensitive. You need all your, your whole population just like being right there. He advised on that and, you know, thank God we were able to do it. And then the other really crazy, because I'm not a scientist, well, I'm not in your world. Well, let me just say this one thing. And then I want to hear what you yeah. have to say. We had our, we had our specimen, our saliva specimen processed at Yale. And when they, you, when they put the specimen on the, on the chip, I, I had to sign off on it, which meant that I had to go back to Moshe Seth and be like, what the hell? Like, like each position really mattered. It could make a difference just on that chip. Um, so it was extraordinary to me how much needs to be controlled. And we were, you know, we were just paying attention to a handful of things, but I, I can appreciate all the variables you guys worked on. Yeah, it's really true. And, and I think, you know, the average person just doesn't appreciate how much variability there are in in these kind of measurements. So I do want to make one point. So if you're trying to learn right, something in science and you want to get rid of all that technical variation, then you're right. You kind of want to locate it to one site. But if you're trying to do something like a diagnostic, if you do that in one site, what it means is that you could actually learn something that works in that site beautifully. But the second you take it anywhere else, it doesn't work. So I was on this uh, commission uh, committee uh, workshop for the National Academies of Medicine. This is like 10 years ago, a little bit more, that actually went through this robustness. And one of the things that we ended up putting into those guidelines were that when you did biomarkers, because there's 100,000 claimed biomarkers in papers every year, two on average make it into the clinic. So that conversion wow. rate is wow. Um that used to be a little bit of a point of pride for Lee and I, because in one decade we had two of them. So we felt pretty good about that. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. That was <laughs> <laughs> following that report. Um, but basically it's, you know, so one of the things that you want to do is to deal with that uncertainty up front so that mm -hmm. you're actually gathering data from multiple sites and you're machine learning across that because that enables you to get signals that are more robust for that transplant. So it really depends kind of what your, your goal yeah. is. You know, I don't get too wonky on that, but that's, that's a, you know, well, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's very compelling. Yeah. And of course, I mean, you want CRP in Miami to be, you know, as good as, as useful as a CRP in Connecticut. No, I completely nope. get it. We were, but we were working, ours was a pilot investigation and we just, you know, we, we, we oh, had to. Totally. It is, if it's yeah. a small study and yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a different, it's a different conversation. And um, you have the cases and the controls from different places. It's mat and that happens all the time for practical reasons. And it's really problematic from a very measure. disruptive. Yeah, of course. I mean, I can just see in ours when we compare the cases and controls, we see different and you know, and these guys were like recruited from the same locations. Um anyway, I just want to say for, you know, this clinicians, functional medicine clinicians are are the large 
portion of the audience here. And so you guys in this, in the Pioneer 100, you were using labs that we, again, I want to just say we use all the time, standard chemistries from, I think, both LabCorp and Quest, but, you know, Genova tests, stuff that we're ordering. So I just, I want to just underscore it because, you know, you've since harvested a ton of information and we're going to talk about some of that research, um, but it just, it's validating for us, I think, that we're, you know, in the right direction. It's nice to, it's nice to hear, um, well, or it's nice to, yeah, go ahead. And those standard clinical labs were so critical because when you start measuring the microbiome, you don't know that much about the health effects. And right. you start measuring the metabolome and you only kind of know health effects. And so it's like a Rosetta Stone in many ways, because you go in, we'll get into this and when we get into specific, um, you know, areas that we want to talk about, but, but the, uh, you know, you start to learn, well, how does the microbiome affect metabolic health? Well, you've got to have validated markers of metabolic health that you believe in, in order to ask that question and so forth. So it really yeah. is a way for you to interpret new data types is to have these other ones that you really understand much better. But then you what you you moved into looking at thousands of individuals. So you were applying this technology. I mean, you guys were for sure, you know, ahead of your time. There you know, you were really early in this world and we were excited about it. You know, those of us kind of early adopters in functional medicine, but I I mean, I have to believe that is a big reason that you you didn't accelerate, you know, that Aravel wasn't able to, you know, isn't here still today. However, you had a massive data set of all, uh, almost 4,000 people and the Pioneer 100, 5,000, amazing. And you learned a ton of stuff. I mean, I quote you in, in my book. I mean, I've, I've just paid attention to your papers. They're incredibly valuable. I've, I just pulled open actually for this conversation, your 2019 publication, uh, Multiomics Biological Age Estimation and its Correlation with Wellness and Disease Phenotypes, a longitudinal study of, at this time, 3,500 individuals. Uh, and you published that in the, the journals of gerontology. This is a, this is an awesome paper, you guys. This is awesome. I'm pretty sure it's free full text. I'm not, well, anyway, there's a, there's a ton, is it? There's a ton of information in this. I, it's so yellow highlighted. Um, so you guys learned a lot from this about uh, biological age and chronological age, whether biological age is even manipulate, manipulatable, if we can slow it down, if it, you know, the association with biological age and disease, you also began to really harvest the biomarkers around this. And to your point, standard chemistries that we're looking at um, are featured broadly in here and really serve they, they're kind of linchpins in, in looking at bioage. So I want you to I want you to talk about um, all of that. Uh, you know, and then you put numbers behind, you know, the accelerated aging in certain disease states. Like, I mean, I've quoted you many times over six years uh, on average, you know, the diabetic patients bioages ahead. So um, it's just a great paper. I recommend anybody to get it. It's influenced my thinking quite a bit. So just talk to me about it. Um, yeah. So it was an incredible study. Uh, you know, John Earls, uh, who was my uh, graduate student at the time was the first author on that and, you know, did, a, did a ton of work on it. So there's a number of take-homes that were, I think, very fascinating. So first was how does this biological age measure change over time in people who are aiming to improve their health. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that we develop the biological age later. So we're, we're not targeting to it with the coaching in Aravel, but we, you know, we develop it and then we, we go back and, and look at that. And it turned out that on average in that population, uh, people got better 
in terms of their biological age compared to their chronologic age by 1.16 years per year on average. Amazing. They're getting- so is, that escape, is that escape velocity? Are they like gonna live forever now? No. <laughs> so if it were just a pure linear trajectory, yes. Sometimes you hear people talk like that, but the, the larger that delta gets, the harder it is to maintain, right? And there's yeah. limits to this. Right. And So basically uh, the healthier you get, it's slowing down considerably. Is what right. you're saying about the depth. Yeah. Of, yeah. I mean, sometimes at parties, you'll joke about that. I'm going to go out the backside. You know, I got to get worried because I'm just going down like too fast or whatever. But, you know, that's uh, that's, <laughs> that's not a real worry. <laughs> not going to regress to childhood. Or at least not yet. We don't have any technologies that way. So, you know, but it is a pretty good measure of health. But there's there's a window of what's possible today. You know, you can't you can't do it forever. Uh, certainly at this point. How broad is the window? Have you figured I that out yet? Probably play with about 20 years or so. That's a good, that's a good chunk um, of time. Which is a good chunk of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so just, you know, so it's 1.16 years on average. Women did particularly well. So women in, in Arabelle were getting better at a rate of one and a half years per year. Uh, so they were getting, you know, half a year younger on average in the, on this metric. And men were getting better at 0 0.8 years per year, meaning that every year they, they age on average 0.2 years, according to this metric. And so we saw that uh, for myself, I'll even say, so I started with a biological age that was right around my chronologic age. And I was in the program for four years and my biological age dropped by 10 years, according to this metric. Incredible. Uh, which was, which I have to say, you know, just to share a personal, that was very gratifying to me because I had kind of felt like my road through Arabelle, I felt like it had helped me in many ways. And cognitively, I was feeling better. I had changed lots of habits. But one of the things that I had really wanted to change more than it did was my weight. And my weight had been pretty stubborn. Um, lose gains really rapidly, lose gain. You know. So I was doing kind of the usual thing. But what was fascinating to me is at least in my blood chemistry, you know, it just kept ticking younger, 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 younger. And so when when uh, when that came out, because I didn't know who I was when we published the study, I went back and I got because I'm in I'm in there. But I have a random ID just like everyone else. So I didn't know who I was, but I was able to get it. And I had John look it up and I said, send it to me. What, you know, how did it come out? And I was so pleasantly surprised. It was one of the reasons we ended up taking the clinical lab version of the biological age, out, um, you know, similar to what's in that paper and turn it into a commercial product at Thorne because I just thought that was, it, it made a, a big impact on me just, just to be able to see it. And so that was a... Um, yeah, that was yeah was something that I think was was very exciting from the standpoint of change. Now, another thing that we get into in that paper that is you know probably not appreciated as much, and it is an important point, is that you can build biological ages from various different sources. Epigenetics is the most famous, but you can do it from metabolomics, you can do it from proteomics, you can do it from clinical labs. Uh, the clinical lab-based biological age today is the most related to clinical outcomes. And it's also important to note that these ages are only somewhat correlated with each other. So if you correlate them straight up, they're about 0.75 correlated, uh, well, maybe even 0.8 correlated, but that's because they're all strongly correlated with age. If you only correlate delta age, right, the difference between biologic and chronologic age, they're only about 0.25 correlated, uh, which means that they share information, but there's, there's quite different information you're getting off of an epigenetic age versus a clinical lab age versus a metabolic age versus a proteomic age and things of this nature. And we're just starting to sort through a lot of that. Well, answer, tell me why 
using clinical bio clinical biomarker based bioages are um, more associated with clinical phenotype? Like, how did you establish that? So I I would say that uh, I didn't. Well, we looked at that certainly in the context of the metabolomic, proteomic, and and um, epigenetic. I'm pulling partly that though out of the work, um, a paper that was co-authored with um, by uh, Morgan Levine and Steve Horvath, where they did a direct head-to-head -head comparison of epigenetic age versus, you know, phenotypic age or age based on you know clinical labs, and compare mm -hmm. that to outcomes. I think it was in the NHANES study, and basically okay. did an analysis of that, and then and then found that out. There are, of course, interesting um, uh, arguments for. Uh, you know, for epigenetic ages and, you know, some of the ways, and there's a lot of cool science that's, that's happening on that. I haven't been terribly involved in that, um, you know, but it's, it's a huge aspect of the aging field and so forth. Uh, but that, so that's what I'm saying. And so I think so, in some of these biological ages, it really comes down and, and, you know, the first clinical study you did was actually a really good example of this, which is the need to make them actionable, I think is so important because I, I feel like, if you're talking about an omics where all it's going to tell you is your age back, it's kind of an interest. It, to me, it's kind of gee whiz, right? It's like, it's yeah. cool, interesting. Yeah. It's not hugely meaningful. But when you can tie a biological age with insight into what's driving it and a plan of action and a way yeah. to improve your health, then it's super, you know, then it's, then it's a driving force for preventive medicine. Yes, yes, yes. Scientific wellness or healthcare or, or whatever, you know. Well, and what you guys did, that's really super cool that I want to kind of underline an exclamation point is that you didn't consider biological age as part of your intervention. So you guys cast this wide, right. you know, biomarker net, you did your interventions, which, which we should talk about, um, and then retrospectively, you kind of analyzed, you layered the clock onto it and saw these really cool findings. Because I think what's happening now in this space, there's just this obsession with biological age. And, you know, there's just this, I, there's a lot, I think there's a kind of a, a, an attachment now to sort of treating the test, you know, and not the human or attempting to manipulate the test, you know, with certain interventions without, you know, considering whole person. And so, you know, to your system's roots, you guys are, you just turn that upside down. That's huge. Something you have to be really careful about. I, I forget who said it, but there's an adage, whenever something becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And so, and what that means is that as soon as you're kind of trying to manipulate a variable. And so when we were doing the biological agent in the paper, one of the things we tried to be very careful about is don't include in the score, any of the kind of things that people supplement with. Because obviously if you're just trying to go to a score, and it has molecules in there, right? You could supplement with those molecules directly and you could manipulate that score a lot. Yeah. But is that meaningful? And it might be, it might be health beneficial, but you haven't proven it if yeah. by the same measure. If you're if you're so what you have to do is tie that to these these other health measures because what you actually care about is the degree to which the delta age, right? The age different. I don't know. I'm an engineer. Delta is how we talk, but you know, if there's the age, the difference between, you know, your biological and chronologic age, to what extent does that show you that you've improved or hurt your health? And then if you can, and then tying that to a plan of action, like what do you do about it? And I, there's so many axes to dive in on there. Chronic inflammation, oxidative radical, you know, you, you could name them all off cognitive reserve, you know, on and on and on. And so I, what I really love is this whole notion of having metrics for wellness, 
So not just do I have cancer, do I not have cancer, but actually, and I think biological age is a great first example of this, but just measures that say, you know, am I become, you know, am I more metabolically flexible? Am I more metabolically resilient this year than I was last year? Is my cumulative uh, inflammation burden lower this year than it was last year? You know, is the, um, you know, the metabolic deficit or my, my, my excess capacity for energy generation in my, in my brain, is it better this year than last year? Things that you can focus on to get better and better at that mm-hmm. make transition to disease less and less likely. I think those kind of things are super important. Yeah, extremely important. And so the clock that you're, that you guys have at Thorne, I mean, you're, there's very tangible action steps that one can, can do based on the findings. Oh yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that that I'll bring up, you know, with Aravail being early, so I remember yeah. someone commented to me and they said, "Oh, I wish Aravail was still around because I want to do that microbiome test." You know, and my my immediate retort was, "Well, Thorne's microbiome test is about a hundred times better than what we had at Aravail because it's just it's late. early." Yeah, that's right. And back then we had to do 16S sequencing. Yeah, and you could you could look at diversity, but it was it was fairly limited. It was crude, yeah. Now you can get into a lot of detail. So, you know, it's just so actionability, right? So off of a microbiome test, you can look at things like, um, you know, metabolic pathways. So if you're looking at different gene complements, are you making too much ammonia that might make your, your stomach too basic and, you know, cause you digestive issues? You can see those kind of things. Uh, we did a, a study, uh, this was joint with colleagues at uh, Sean Gibbons in particular at ISB, looking in that population at who went on to lose weight versus those who didn't. And when we looked at baseline, once you controlled for BMI, there was not a strong signal in the metabolome or the proteome or even all those clinical labs, but there was in the microbiome. And so the microbiome was quite different for people who went on to lose, in this case, I think we had it at 1% of their body weight per month and those who didn't. And the big difference was if you had a microbiome that broke down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars, those individuals did not go on by and large to lose weight. But if you had a microbiome that broke down complex carbohydrates preferentially into short chain fatty acids, it was much easier. And there was a big difference between Fascinating. Those. Wow. There's there's many things that and that one we, you know I'd want to replicate in a in a prospective trial. Yeah. But there are but there are mechanisms that you can look at that make quite a bit of sense. And and that you can dive into and and understand in that that way anyway and and then and and all of this will funnel ultimately towards lowering your biological age reducing you know disease risk um that's fascinating what were the organisms out of curiosity were you able to nail down or was it just sort of action as a whole, it's across, we... it's across a bunch of different organisms. So we weren't, weren't we weren't really looking at it from the standpoint of organism by organism. Mm-hmm. It's but really function metabolic, yeah, the gene content. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in a different study that we we published in Nature Metabolism in twenty one, you know, there we were looking longitudinally at aging, and it turns out that if you stay healthy over at about starting around age fifty, your microbiome starts looking less and less like anyone else's microbiomes. So mm-hmm. if you just compare them, they start being more and more distant from each other. And yet the metabolic transformations that are associated with healthy aging are largely conserved. And so they're solving these similar issues, but in very diverse ways. And so I think in many cases, yeah. we really want to get at like, what's the metabolic function yes. of 
of your microbiome as you measure it in the metagenome is much more predictive than are you know, the actual species. And there are some differences to that, right? If C. diff is obviously important because it secretes certain toxins and you know, there, sure. there are areas that would you get into, but sure. broadly those metabolic components are, are more predictive. So fascinating. Well, we know that, you know, bacteria just share genes, like, you know, like, I don't know. All the time. Playing cards or whatever. Like, so yeah, that's, it's just really, really interesting to me. Um, all right. What do I want to ask you? So interesting in your, in this, going back to this 2019 paper, I included it in, I, I created a table in the book of some of the top labs um, that we can get that people who are reading it can go and ask their doctor for. And I, I was definitely looking at what you were seeing because you were definitely, you had some standard biomarkers that any of us can ask our physicians to order or a panel that we can put together as providers for our patients um, are really pretty strongly associated you know, beneficially or, you know, inversely with biological age. Can you talk about some of those standard chemistries? What what are your favorites? And, and has that changed since this publication? Yeah. So the ones that really matter the most are not terribly surprising. So hemoglobin A1C, fast, you know, more so even than fasted glucose, but both of those, because metabolic health is number one driver. And I'm sure this is what you talk yes. about with patients and so forth, because you've got to be metabolically healthy. That is... Uh, a huge driver. Just to give it a, a, you know, a comparison, smoking, as I recall, raises raised biological age by two years. That's it, it. Yes, I just read that. That was actually my next question. Like, what's up with that? I mean, really? Less than we would have thought. Less than we would have thought. Um, you know, but metabolic. You know, so if you're smoking or you're 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 pounding potato chips, eh, I don't know. <laughs> or sedentary, right? Being sedentary is, you know, is a huge killer as we know. So that metabolic health is like the primary driver. Second big driver uh, is uh, our hormones. Now we don't get into a ton of detail in hormones uh, in here because we didn't, you know, measure tons of them, but we did it through the reserve for most, for many of the hormones, which is DHEA. And DHEA turns out to be really good from a biological age standpoint, because especially if you look at, especially uh, female hormones, you know, because they cycle and change uh, mm -hmm. so much, it becomes, you can do it, but it, it's, it, it's, it's a squishy target in order of trying to create like a robust biological age score. Um, and so DHEA is, is quite, uh, you know, and it's a pool for both estrogen and testosterone. And so that, that turned out to be uh, a very sure. big measure. And then a third bucket that really was important uh, were toxins. So yeah, talk about those, which in particular, uh, lead was the one that we really found uh, a lot. And so one of the reasons for that is that you're not very well able to clear uh, lead out of the body. And so it ticks up over time. And so one of the big factors of biological aging was just watching that increase. And of course, there's all kinds of toxicities that come along with that. And let me just say, it's increasing, not necessarily because of, of current exposure, if that's what folks are thinking about, it can be liberated from bone because that's where we sequester it to kind of prevent tox, you know, the, the toxic effect of it. So we can see this, what we call secondary half-life in it's circulation. The great, great point. Yeah, exactly. So you could have even removed yourself, but it's, it's yeah. thick up. Mercury was another one mm -hmm. uh, and mercury can leak old style fillings uh, yes. can, can leach out. Uh, actually, our CEO at Aravel had one of those. Like he found it as he got in Aravel. He's talking about this publicly. Wow. So he actually got those switched. 
Uh, tuna sushi was a big one. Uh, Jeff Bland, I think he shared it. Well, he, he was in the study. He was, yeah, he was open about yeah. that publicly. So I could, I could say yeah. it. Um, and, you know, realized, okay, got to back that off. We had three people that were really high in the pioneer 100 on mercury. Um, uh, two of them because of uh, tuna sushi primarily and the third for, um, uh, for the tooth. So those become really big issues. And if you start tying this in with genetics, it can become even more important. Interesting. What we found, because one of the things that was really struck me as, um, you know, just kind of a eureka moment early on was yeah. that we didn't actually have to just watch disease arise and go back and try to look for early warning signs, but we could use genetics as a rubric to look at things right away because you can take data that we were getting already on people. And because we have genetic signatures that are associated with, with high to low risk for all kinds of different diseases, you could use the genetics themselves to just look in the population of healthy people and start to see what's different between people who are at high and low risk for all these things. This episode is supported by Practice Better, a leading all-in-one practice management platform. Most health and wellness professionals love what they do, but feel overwhelmed with time-consuming administrative tasks. With Practice Better, you can automate tasks like onboarding, scheduling, charting, nutrition planning, and billing to help you better focus on the parts of your practice you love. New Frontiers listeners get 20% off the first four months of any paid plan at practicebetter.io with code KF20. Visit the podcast page on drkarafitzgerald.com for more information. So one that comes to mind is yeah. ALF. And so people who are at really high risk for ALS, one mm-hmm. of the things we found is that they tended to have more heavy metals in their blood. And so when we looked at that, that's interesting because heavy metals are a known risk factor for ALS, but we were finding this in people that don't have the disease, right? But just as a function of the genetics, which suggests that if you have a polygenic risk score that tells you you're at high risk for ALS, yeah. you're probably less well able to clear heavy metals than the average person. So you should be more diligent on that. And we, we found 750 examples like that. That's just the first. Amazing. Thing. Did you happen to, so, you know, one of the reasons we can accumulate lead um, or toxic metals is if we've got, you know, uh, one of the genes or um, we're, we're heterozygous for anything associated with hemochromatosis. I don't know. Did you look at that for chance? Because that, I mean, that increases the quantity of transport proteins in the gastrointestinal tract, actually in the brain as well. And we just absorb easy because the toxic metals can hitch a ride on the, you know, the iron transport proteins. Anyway, something yeah. I've observed clinically. Absolutely. And it's it's a really great example. And hemochromatosis, because it is, you know, the most common genetic disease in, 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 um, in Caucasians, but it is, um, but basically, you know, we had people in the Pioneer 100 like that. Yeah. Um, the people that we screened had sky high ferritin levels in their blood. And so we got them in, uh, you know, they really credited us with making a huge impact on their health because he had become quite debilitated and didn't know why. And it's the yeah. kind of thing like, well, your doctor should have measured that and his doctor should have, but he had concierge medicine on both coasts and they, well, I, I don't know, I don't, they never wow. looked, who knows, who knows why, yeah. uh, but it was, uh, you know, but we found that and the treatment for that, of course, is Probably. very simple. Yeah. 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 You go. It's, it's uh, the thing I like to say is we did this huge high-tech study to find the one disease you can cure by leeches, but it's, you know, it's 
it's a huge, you know, it's a, it's oh, a right. very under, it's very underappreciated, you know, anti-aging intervention, super potent, and it benefits the world tremendously if you give a little blood. I was just looking at, actually, I was just looking at my, I just got a CBC and, you know, I donate blood and just noticed that, you know, it's time. My numbers look good. Um, did you happen to notice if he also had metals, kind of track toxic metals tracking with that elevated ferritin? Just he... We'll have to go back and look. Yeah, as I recall, he also had high, you know, relatively high mercury and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Those the others, are... I, I don't remember for sure right off the top of sure. my head. I published a, a case a case report on that on that topic um, from some, uh, from an IFM faculty. Actually, I wrote a whole book over a decade ago and collection of case studies, and that was one of the the most interesting ones. Just seeing the how those toxic metals can can hitch a ride. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's so interesting. I, so um, I also want to bring to the attention of folks, your, what you guys found were the standard biochemistry, the, the standard biomarkers actually track really nicely with the phenoage DNA methylation test created by Morgan Levine. I think you were referencing that earlier in Steve Horvath. Yeah, he does a lot of great work. Yeah. 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 Um, so if anybody's familiar with the phenoage, um, the, it, this, the DNA methylation score is based on albumin, I think lymphocyte count, if I'm not mistaken, alkaline phosphatase, um, mean cell volume, uh, just a handful of standard labs, CRP. And CRP. you found that, like you found- We find similar uh, things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you really you really did. And so these are, these are things that we can look. And then you actually added on that. I'm, again, I'm looking at the tables in the paper here, uh, a lead, A1C, et cetera. Um, and it's worth so, noting that those were, you know, learned and regressed independently. In other words, it's not like, you know, so if your doctor's bringing that up with you, yeah, there's something to it. Like you can have independent labs that find, you know, that will find that. And if anyone else dives in and does it, they're going to find it again, too. It's a very robust signal. I want to just bring your book to folks' attention. You're covering, a, cover a lot of this stuff in the book, and it's just really easy to read. It's incredibly interesting. You You wrote it with Lee Hood, who, if anybody doesn't know... He was one of the guys who mapped out the human genome. Am I, yep. am I correct in that? Like he's a, absolutely. You know, it's, he's just, he's a pretty extraordinary human as, as far as I, I know, sort of from a distance, but you uh, yeah. guys, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you guys write in chapter 10, the, the AI, the artificial intelligence <laughs> imperative, you write, you write, you know, the realization of this vision of healthcare that is predictive, preventive, personalized and participatory, uh, depends on many moving parts, but no tool will be more important than artificial intelligence. So you're clearly using it all over the place in your work. Um, when is it going to be, you know, in my clinic? Like, when is it going to be like real time influencing us? I mean, how can we access, you know, AI? Yeah. So I think it's worth saying that there's AI is already being used in many ways. And then maybe I'll talk about short term and longer term. Yeah. So one of the ways that we we chronicle in the book that AI is being used right now is the correction of medical errors. So you know, some of that comes around, you know, as you're filling out an EHR and you're, you're going to click on a drug, for example, these drugs have long, complicated names. And some of them that have very different indications sound pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So a busy or tired or, you know, physician could easily... And do, in fact, it, you know, at some level, click the wrong, you know, the wrong box, whatever. So some of the one of the ways that AI is used, and this is a program called MetaWare, um, 
just simply corrects for those kind of things, which just brings up, oh, did you mean this? Because it understands that it looks like this patient needs, you know, you know, has kidney problems and you just clicked on something that is, you know, for a heart trouble or something. Yeah. And that has been already been able to fix hundreds of thousands of other potential errors in the system. So there, so, so there's some low hanging fruit that are just useful for that level. Uh, next level up, you know, just looking at the kind of AIs that have you know burst on the scene lately with you know with ChatGPT and other things like that. There was a survey, uh, and I believe the numbers I saw were something like 65% of doctors say that they have used that as a tool for. Um, you know, as they're doing diagnostics and things of this nature. Now, it's not at a level where you would completely trust it and, and those kind of things, sure. but it is very useful if you're trying to remember. And I use it myself. I have to say when when I'm like, oh, you know, remind me about this or what, you know, and I'll if it's important, I'll double check on it. Mm -hmm. But especially the later versions are pretty good. Like so the, the ability to do that and coming very soon, I think, is going to be a, a big reduction on burden of physicians for chart notes and things like this, because you can set up a recording, it can listen to you talk, it can transcribe, and then you can have GPT write up notes. And then the doctor is now just reviewing the notes, right? Reviewing and editing, but hopefully that's a, a one to two minute thing instead of a, you know, however long it takes. So those kind of things are important. Another area that I think is going to come in small pieces and then large pieces are digital twins. So this is this is something that's talked about a lot. And this is one of the things we've actually developed um, at Thorne with, um, along with a partner uh, around um, digital twins for brain health. And this has been, and this is what I've spent a lot of the last three years on. Um, and it's been pretty remarkable because one, it's given me a very different view of what drives Alzheimer's disease, um, not amyloid. And I think it is really driven in primarily um, by uh, metabolism. And there's many ways that you, well, basically by the need of the brain to create energy. So your, your brain consumes 20% of your body's energy. It's 2% of biomass. So it's 10 times more metabolically active than an average tissue. So it's you know, a massive energy hawk. So you have to feed energy up to it all the time. And if you starve mice, for example, the last two areas that get, you know, it will start muscle wasting. It pulls energy away from everything until the brain and the heart. And at the very, very end, it preserves the brain, number one. Right. Um, now, the brain makes decisions. So maybe that's not surprising, but it, but that is, you know, but it is the energy hot. And so, and so when you start looking at this, like, what does it take for a neuron to stay, you know, to, to stay alive? Then you have to satisfy that. And as you get older, your ability to perfuse oxygen into your brain goes down. Um, and then APO, and it turns out that under these conditions, you want to keep cholesterol levels and astrocytes low. APOE has a role in that. APOE4 will transport that cholesterol, but slowly, which keeps concentration high, which keeps energy production neurons low, which means more neurons die, which means you get Alzheimer's in, at age 70. If you have APOE2, it's fast keeps that concentration low. You're more efficient at making energy uh, efficiently under low oxygen and you don't ever get Alzheimer's. So you get it when you're in 95 or something. And so these kind of changes, anyway, I don't take too much of an aside, but, but you can get, you can get into these things 
And what the digital twins have let us do is we can then take this mechanism and we've, we've layered onto that core mechanism, the effects of inflammation, the effects of microglia, the effects of um, TREM2 variants, the effect, anyway, uh, vit uh, vitamin D, phosphatidylcholine, uh, every known risk factor that we can find into a unified model of one single complex mechanism represented by this you know, sophisticated ODE uh, based model with the Bayesian network overlay. And, but basically with this complex model, and then we've been able to simulate 10 million digital twins of patients. And when you do that, you're able to, to recapitulate very closely the age of onset of all the different genotypes, match all the risk factors. So we have a pretty good representation. We think we're going to, you know, go, we've compared it to 30 uh, clinical trials and research studies that are out there. We're going to, you know, we're going to be doing a prospective trial on it. But basically what it does is it gives you this really holistic view. And these digital twins, and we're going to get that out hopefully to clinicians. Um, I hope next year we got to figure out the, the path forward and you know all the regulatory hoops we got to jump through and all those kind of things. But you know, we'll get that kind of thing is going to be, it already functions, it works. We can use blood data. Uh, we can make these measures. We can show them to people. We've shown them to a number of physician groups. I'm going to give a talk to the uh, National Institutes of Health, uh, Alzheimer's disease and, and uh, combinatorial therapy. I'm lucky enough to be one of the three uh, opening plenary speakers for that meeting. And it's going to be all about this. And we're going to talk about it. So you just, so the digital twin model will be available to us in practice? Yes, that is what we're going for. Wow. So that, that I think is going to be really important. And so as we, as we do that, um, and so we're going to be able to do that for the brain. We're going to be able to do it for metabolism. We're going to be able to do it for skin health. We're going to do it for aging. Like you can dive in and it gives you a rubric to understand how molecular level data relates to patient outcome. And you can do this in really powerful ways. So we would be able to in advance. So we've uploaded all the patient data that we've got at our fingertips. And maybe you're going to guide us to order certain things. Like we want a full genome and we want this and this. Um, yeah. But then we can try different interventions for what's going on in this digital twin model to see and you can the simulate the likely outcome of the intervention in advance. And the combination of interventions. And a combination. Interactions. Interactions. So like synergy of, of an appropriate combination or detriment. Or yes. For the areas where we have enough you know, detailed science, and we've taken about data from about a thousand papers to build this thing out. But as you, if, as you take that information, then that is going to let you um, be able to ask the question like, so what's the best intervention? How many years? So what this thing will do is actually, you know, given the data, it will say, here's the most likely age of onset. And there's a probabilities associated with all these things. We try to take into account measurement error, uh, error in like, you know, how much we know about, you know, the effects. So there's, there's a propagation, right? So it's a probabilistic model, but you get a range. So, you know, we might say for this, um, you know, there's like an example I, I often show, but it's, you know, uh, a 50 year old man. And we, in this case, predict age of onset would be 61, um, most likely, but there's like a 99% chance that he's going to have it before 68, if he doesn't do anything to change. But then you can give a set of interventions. It will then say, you know, um, whether or not the patient is a, is likely to, you know, what percentile responder they are to each of them. Oh, and this is coming back to our earlier discussion on functional medicine. One of the things that stands out is that very often 
all the individual interventions are predicted to do nothing very often, but combinations are predicted to do a lot. Like, yeah. so you might take something where every individual intervention is predicted to do nothing. And yet there's a combination that will give them a decade of extra life. And we can simulate the quantitative mechanisms for why that is in every individual case for the yeah. areas, again, that where we have you know enough information. And so one of the other things, and I gave a talk to the um, advisory council to the NIH director last month on this same topic, basically arguing that we should do prevention trials, not on sing single compounds, because when you do prevention trials on a single compound, almost everybody is a non-responder. And especially when you're talking about natural compounds, yeah. the end that you would need and the length of time in order to see that, because you're just, yeah. you're just, yeah, 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 yeah. And the economics make no sense because you're yeah. not, it's not a, if I do that for vitamin D, it's yeah. not, I'm not going to make, you know, the company's not going to make a hundred billion dollars on that over time. Mm -hmm. So I cannot justify the length and type of trial it would take to do that analysis. But if I test instead the digital twin, which is a representation of everything that I think I know about the disease, where I'm going to take measurements. I'm going to run it through the, the digital twin algorithm, and I'm going to do something different, personalized for every person. Now, the, the reason that that has that approach in the past has not taken off amongst like your hardcore scientists is because it comes off as too squishy too often. Because if you go in and you say, well, I'm just going to do the thing that I think is right. You know, it's hard to say, well, you're, are you changing it post facto right after the fact or, you know, what? But it, when it's written down as an algorithm, it's still one concrete thing. The algorithm doesn't change. It is being tested. But the fact pattern against the algorithm means that you can personalize the intervention to every single person. And when we've run this analysis, it shows that we should be able to get clinically validated improvement in things like mild cognitive impairment leading to Alzheimer's in a one-year trial with maybe a couple hundred people instead of a trial that on a single compound that would take forever. Because now you're talking about trials where most people are responders instead of trials where almost everybody is a non-responder and it's radically different. And so one of the things, I, I, um, I gave this talk at the um, American Nutrition Association meeting uh, last month because I, I won yeah. their, uh, their science award for this year, the Alexander and Mildred Selig Award. And so gave the opening talk there and got into this because for the nutrition field, as well as for functional medicine, to me, this is like the holy grail, because what we can do now is say, and this is where those old discussions on, you know, like who has the scientific high ground, what we can actually say is no, we can actually run randomized, rigorous clinical trials on individualized interventions. And the way that we're doing these in the traditional approach is not as good. In fact, it's not a very smart strategy because if you're isolating that one compound, you can never get to the end that you want to get to. You can never show the effect. You have to do these multimodal trials. And, and so that's not a new, right? We know that, but by writing them down in the algorithm, you can really make that incredibly standardized. And I think scale and so what I want to do is to say, let's build those for every single major category of health 
run all the trials. And now all of a sudden we have personalized evidence-based medicine that's incredibly rigorous and actually at a scale of rigor that's more, that's better than what we have in the traditional uh, approach. Still an RCT, but it's personalized. And so that I think is going to be, uh, I don't know, I get very excited about this topic because I just think that is the way that we can have an it's incredible- mind-blowing. Wow. You know, I was talking about Bob Roundtree. I was texting oh, back and oh, forth. I'm, yeah, about to, yeah. I'm about to get on the, I'm about to, I'm about to podcast with Nathan. <laughs> Any thoughts? And he said, yeah, ask him about Alzheimer's and the digital twin. And I'm I'm so glad. I mean, this obviously could could and should maybe, maybe in the future, just comprise a whole conversation because it's, it's, it's extraordinary. So if I'm understanding it, like if I just really simplify it, um, if we had it in clinical practice, so that, that the, there's the, the algorithm is consistent, but what changes are my patient's data, because yep. obviously their data is going to, you know, from patient to patient. So all of that, it could be, you know, obviously tons of stuff, environment, age, you know, blood biomarkers, et cetera. All of that is, is, is packed in there, but the algorithm is consistent. And then the interventions, obviously, just based on filtering through um, their individual phenotype will shift the response uh, to the interventions. Is that basically what the digital twin is? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, so you might come in and it will say, for you, you need vitamin D and phosphatidylcholine and, um, you know, and to improve your sleep profile by this amount and whatever, and you'll get eight extra years. Yeah. And for me, it might say, you need to up your VO2 max and take, phosphatidylserine and, um, you know, and lower your basic inflammation or whatever. And so it will be some combination of things based on the biology that it observes. How are you guys establishing dosing? Like, how do you know, and, and are you staying within the boundaries of, you know, what's been studied or are you jumping outside of that? So we are staying within the boundaries and that's something we honestly could do more of as we go forward in terms of the dosing. So we, we try to calibrate it to papers around like, you know, how much dose gets in and then, you know, what the effect, you know, and so it might hit a receptor and then like change it. One of the nice things in the digital twin models, the style that we're using is because it has this um, Bayesian network overlay, what that means for people that aren't familiar with Bayesian statistics, which is probably most doctors, <laughs> is that it adapts itself to as much or as little data as you have. So in other words, if I, okay. I know nothing about you, right? you're a human, it will output the average response for a human. And if I say, this is a woman, it will update to the average for a woman. I say 48 years old, it adapts to that. And then I start saying, who's pre-diabetic and has been pre-diabetic for this length of time and has is APOE4 double positive and you know, on and on. And it just, it adjusts the, the parameters uh, and then what the simulation does with however much or little data as you have. And so that's kind of the beauty of, of these kind of approaches, because we think we can use that in, you know, with doctors, you know, based on the amount of information they have, what they're doing with their patients in a relatively flexible way. It's not infinitely flexible, of course, because we have to have, you know, we have to have hooks into the model of, of ways that we can simulate that. Right. So if you have like a new hypothesis that we haven't contemplated, right, the model won't magically be able to do something with that. But as those areas emerge, we can build out the biology and tack it on and it can become smarter and smarter and, rec and 
And this is one of the things that I, I really want to build going forward is a network of physicians who are, are using this and sharing data back, because what we would be able to do is create a community where we're learning at an incredible rate. We're able to do periodic clinical trials around this, you know, an update, but basically it allows for a, a community learning system where we get better and better at the disease. And of course, what we're all hoping is that, you know, we ultimately get to the place where we can really effectively treat all of these conditions. And what we want to do is build, you know, the back end, you know, the algorithms, the digital twins, the, you know, provide tools and, and things like that, and then let the doctors build the programs and work with the patients uh, the way that they want to. Um, but that that's what, you know, that's what I'm really excited about, because I think we can get to this world where we get, you know, dense measurements that can be done cheaply and, and easily. And, you know, we spent a lot of time at Thorne on that too, like our microbiome wipe to make the, you know, sample of microbiomes easier. And we've got this painless at home blood measurement device, the nano, like, so we're trying to make these things like simple, but then what I really want to do is just to tie all of that information together with these deep biological models where we get these digital twin simulations and then make them readily accessible to the community and have a lot of back and forth dialogue in terms of what are we learning and what's working and what's not and, and iterate. And I, and I really believe that the pace of progress for chronic disease could be majorly accelerated by building something like that. So that that's my. hundred percent. It feels, <laughs> it feels like logarithmic. <laughs> when I think back on the beginning of my career, I mean, I've got like the, the Boringer Manaheim, you know, wall chart over there, like just sort of trying to hold all of this in my head when I'm interpreting lab data and thinking about mechanisms. I mean, you've just, God, you've just blown it open. That's like really, just really fascinating, really exciting. God. Yeah. I would love to, you know, if you need a clinician, I would volunteer. I worry about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would just love to be a, be a part of it. Um, we've got a ton that we could keep talking about but on. I, I, I would like to have you back maybe, you know, I don't know when you're nearing launch or whatever, but just a couple more questions on this digital twin. Like, yeah. are we, I mean, nutrition information, how granular can it get on like you know, macronutrients, et cetera, or combinations. I mean, I'm sure you're thinking about ketogenic and maybe broad macro ratios, but how granular? Yeah, it's a great point. And it's something that we can get a lot more granular than we are right now. Mm -hmm. uh, actually had a really interesting conversation with Chris Palmer, who you might know for, who wrote Brain Energy, you know, about kind of getting his thoughts on some of these things. So the, um, like a good example of that is, so phosphatidylcholine we think is a really important molecule. A lot of, you know, a lot of people do. Uh, our, the digital twin model predicts that a lot of people, this becomes rate limiting. You literally run out of it. Like the simulations run out of this and then you start having neuronal death. And so we looked in the nutrition literature and just said, you know, do people who eat diets rich in phosphatidylcholine get Alzheimer's later than people who don't? The answer is yeah, about three years later on average in these observational uh, nutrition studies. And I will say it's very different to machine learn the, the nutrition literature than it is to say, here's one focused hypothesis. Does it hold up when you look in? That's a very different thing. So that, that I think is very interesting. So then we started to look at, so right now, the way that we're doing it, it's very, um, it's very granular. It's not, you know, it's, it's pretty high level, which is we ask questionnaires about the kinds of foods that people eat. And we basically bucket them into four groups of, you know, high, high, medium, low, medium, low phosphatidylcholine, and that we use that as a crude measure in the model. Now, we'd much rather, as we get the metabolomics test going, say, all right, let's look at the actual blood measures. 
and get it more that way. And a better one would be a tissue measure and, and so forth. Anyway, all I want to say is that there's there's so much granularity that we can get in terms of understanding that person's diet. And some things were at a very rudimentary level and some were at a really advanced level. Like glucose, you're at a very advanced level because you can wear a CGM and you can monitor it like crazy. Uh, and so there's there's this continuum like that. So that's an area that I'm, I'm really interested in. You know, we're working on, you know, deep metabolomics testing where we could measure maybe tens of thousands of these small molecules. And my hope is that we're going to be able to learn partly by tying it to the standard labs, right? As our Rosetta stone again, but figuring how do we read tons of different measures off of that kind of, you know, big omics test that you could do inexpensively at home at scale. But as we start to learn how to read that information, we should be able to start informing these things at a much, much deeper level. So, so it all goes kind of hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And then the other element that I think is so interesting is that with the technologies like the GPTs, the large language models, we can start to give back, um, you know, especially if we're doing this with physicians, there can be two-way dialogue and the algorithms can actually understand that dialogue. And, and so we can have conversations at a scale that we kind of couldn't couldn't do before. Anyway, that's getting a little bit out there, but it's it is a really interesting space to tie together multiomics, digital twins that tie that multiomics to patients, and then the AIs that really let us deliver content and information in ways that are accessible and understandable. And I think that's going to really change the future of medicine. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So the, so the, the omics data that you're, or the metabolomics data that you're looking at, you know, going back to the, putting this to nutrition are, you know, the molecules that are being absorbed and transformed, et cetera, et cetera. So you'll be looking at the influence of, you'll be indirect, you'll be looking at the effect of the dietary pattern, yeah. more than the dietary pattern itself, which is cool. You know, yeah, that's sense. what I would like to get to because, you know, and we've, there's some work to do obviously to get there, but we all know the difficulties of you know, the questionnaires, no one wants to log their food for long, a few people, but most people won't log their food for yeah. long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's too much lying and exception. And I'll just use myself as an example, right? I've logged my food for periods, but you know, the day I most likely to not log is the day that I fall off the wagon, right? You're like, oh, I'll start logging again tomorrow. Today was bad. I was stressed yeah. or whatever. And so that's a very human uh, response. And so the metabolism, and there's some clear examples, like in the Pioneer 100, one of the interest, interesting molecules is codeine. Codeine tells you with basically 100% accuracy if you smoke, because you look for codeine in the blood and it's zero, 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 a thousand, zero, 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 a thousand. Because <laughs> you you, you, if you're smoking, it's in there. If you're not smoking, you, a few people would, you know, maybe if you're chronically exposed to secondhand smoke or something, you'd get, you know, some of it in there. But you, but it's a very clean readout. Now, foods are more complicated. But we should be able to tell the difference pretty well between, you know, are you eating a lot of foods that have polyphenols? Well, then polyphenols will be in your blood. Huge. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. The biggest confounder is that like your recent diet probably matters more than the long term. And we've got to figure out. But there's also, as you know, food frequency questionnaires, you know, the one day questionnaire is actually validated pretty well, because if you take any person's like one day, it's about 80 percent accurate, I think, is the number in terms of, you know, because you tend to eat similar yeah. at the same time. That's fascinating. Um, 
yeah, I, I want to ask you about the the factoring the microbiome in there as well. But um, I want to we we, we, we uh, let me well comment on the microbiome. Go ahead. Comment on the microbiome for just oh. well. I mean, I'm thinking about the transformation of 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 the, our new our macro our, our nutrients oh, our macronutrients yes, yes. Oh, through sorry. the microbiome, and then the and then you know the. The, you know, the polyphenols and the, you know, the postbiotic compounds that are absorbed and all of that. So, I mean, in theory, if you're, you know, if your food frequency questionnaire is BS, I mean, right. you're going to just obviously have a much different picture. So I'm just wondering, but, but I guess maybe more fundamentally, my question is, you know, factoring the microbiome influence on everything into the yeah. the twin, into the digital twin. Yeah, we haven't done that in, in uh, yet but it's going to be really important. Like the one area that we have looked at, and it's a very important one. So phosphatidylcholine, I mentioned, right? So we think yeah. that's really important for brain health. Model bears that out. The nutrition data bears that out. I've got some right here, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and there's, there is a bot here. <laughs> if you have certain bacteria, and there's like 30 different bacteria, I think that are right. more now, they will actually eat phosphatidylcholine and they'll turn it into trimethylamine. Now, you'll probably know this, right? Because trimethylamine gets in, in your blood, your liver turns it into TMAO. TMAO is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So you could be pounding a supplement or eating lots of eggs. Or you're trying to get your phosphatidylcholine yeah, yeah. brain, which is a very smart, good thing to do. But if you actually have the wrong species of bacteria, you're, in, you're getting a different compound, and that's not good. Mm -hmm. uh, so some of the ways you can do, you can monitor for that. So, you know, I definitely recommend monitoring, uh, you know, TMAO periodically, especially if you're taking phosphatidylcholine or something like that. Um, I'm going to get mine measured again in a couple of weeks. Uh, so just, just to look for that. Uh, and then you can see if it's in your microbiome, you know, ways that you might then, you know, try to try to shift that away. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I'd love to get into the twins and into some of the things we do with clinicians is, is to have, you know, like a streamlined approach that it, that's monitoring for that along with ways that you might, you know, that you could really go about trying to remedy that. Uh, so that, that gets into an integrated approach. And it is important to think about because the microbiome, every single thing you take into your body, right? Whether it's a supplement, food, or a drug can get modified by the microbiome. And there was a great yeah. cell paper a couple of years ago. So about 13%. Of drugs are metabolized away by the microbiome, and it's a different thirteen percent for different people. It depends on your microbiome, and they, you know, they did this really deep, deep dive. So that means you could be on a clinical trial, or just you know on a drug from your physician, and you're on something totally different, and you don't know that because the microbiome is two black blocks. So that's why when we say the microbiome is so important for health, it really is, and the depth that we have now compared to you know, when we started um, Aravel like nine years ago, uh, radically better. Yeah. And microbiome right. five years are going to be radically better than they are now. Yeah. Uh, so we're learning, but but a lot of this has become so actionable now. Mm -hmm. And I really think anyone that's not paying attention to microbiome is is you know doing their their patients or you know, a disservice at this point because yeah. it is it's a critical factor to so many things. Let me just ask you this. Let me go back to TMAO. So, you know, Bob Browntree always talks about it as being, you know, surrogate marker of choline insufficiency. So if you've got a bunch of TMAO, your choline in circulation is probably low. That's probably um, true. Because it's, because it's being 
commandeered by the microbiome. You could actually look at that with your data set. You could go dive right into that and answer that, answer Bob's question. We talk about, he brings this up all the time. We were just talking about this a little while ago, but anyway. Well, um, just one quick aside, that is the beauty of these really dense data sets, the kind we built at Airbus. It's exactly this. So you have this the question. And usually you say, oh, okay, I got to go raise money. I got to go do a clinical trial. I got to go measure it. So as long as you're doing these smaller data trials, but when you have something like what we had in the Aravail data set, you can literally know that by tomorrow. Go query it, yeah. Go query it. That's why it was the most fun project that I ever did by a million miles, because you could just ask the question. Well, I'll, I'll give one, one aside, then I want to come back to your question. So the <laughs> big effect on statins, for example. So what, uh, and this is work again with Sean Gibbons at ISB, but we took the Aravail data because tons of people are on statins and we have their microbiomes, we have all this information. And we looked and we, so we take microbiomes, we just cluster them into four groups, just uh, data-driven, and then analyze statin results for those different groups. And it turns out that if you have a microbiome uh, in this group that's uh, high in bacteroides, those people get double the lowering of LDL cholesterol on the same dosage of statin. Amazing. Double, double the effect. Wow. Now, the other side is that the downside of statins, or one of them, is that you get a nearly 10% increase in the rate of diabetes. Well, our study also has all the diabetes markers, right? We have hemoglobin A1C and fasted glucose. Yeah. So we looked at the same influence of the microbiome, and two of the four groups, you get a significant jump up in the diabetes markers. But in two of them, they're not statistically different at all. So you can segment by the microbiome people who are at risk for potentially transitioning to diabetes from those that aren't. Statin-related diabetes, wow. Who is probably going to be the most efficacious. Unfortunately, there is an overlap between efficacious and having the diabetes side effects. So there's not like one sure. you know, area that overwhelmingly, you know, the answer. But you could go into it with your eyes open. You can, and you can yeah. understand it. And that's just uh, finding it, right? Now we might be able by diving in to really understand what those transformations are and optimize it for somebody. Yeah. So, so like, so what do we do now? Like, what? how do we answer that question? Is there, I mean, how do we know? What do we look at in the microbiome to, to determine? It's interesting. I have a, a patient whose calcium score just came back and it's over 1500. So she's at really high risk. I mean, she's going to have to be medically managed for that and in part and maybe other things, but like, you know, how, how do I, how do I discern whether she's going to be a favorable responder or she's going to develop diabetes? I mean, how do I actually obtain that information from a stool test? Yeah. Now? I mean, I think the best way, I mean, yeah, you can do it. Uh, yeah. We're, we're looking at, um, we've got to get that on to the market to make it easy. If you have a, as I assume most doctors have an in-house microbiome computational person that can you know, <laughs> run some numbers for us. Yeah. yeah. Numbers Rhonda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's totally easy. Uh, so we really, this is one of the reasons I, when I moved to Thorne, I'm like, I got to get more of these things like out in the market to make it easy for people to do this stuff. So, so we can develop, you know, we can develop that. Um, ISB did patent that. So they are trying to license this out to, um, you know, to get a commercial partner to, to build this into a tool for doctors. So you can do that. Of course, the way to do it right now is to monitor for those diabetes markers. I think sure. anyone who's on a statin right now watch for that. Yeah. And then in the microbiome, you could look for, you know, well, you can look for this high abundance of bacteroides, like some of the features yeah. that are, in, but that's not so hard to see. Right. And so, you could look for that. And if it looks like they're in that clade, 
you know, then that Mental might note. be reason to say, okay, well, the microbiome might be partially driving this. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, are there steps then that you, and then you could look into, you know, diets, uh, you know, certain fibers and so forth to try to shift to a different microbiome and then update. I think there would be a fair amount of trial and error at this point in sure. terms, but, you know, you can try interventions that are very, you know, it's a, it's a creative way to look at a stool test that, you know, that most of us in functional medicine are getting. All right. So I'm going to just circle back to CMEO again. Like, is this a surrogate? So I talk, talked about it being, or Bob, is the one who 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 suggested oh, right. it as a, a surrogate marker of choline deficiency. So it's being hogged by the microbiome. Is it a surrogate marker of dysbiosis also? I mean, are the players who are produ- who are banging out the TMA are they dysbiotic players? They they are, um, they are certainly. I don't know if I would go so far as to say. I mean, they are dysbiotic in the sense that they're making TMAO. TMAO, right. And, so I'm not I'm not exactly sure you know, how you know how far I would push that in any of their their particular cases. They are definitely dysbiotic in the sense that you want them gone, um, and there's no real po- as far as I know there's no positive benefit to them. So you know it's not like when you're getting rid of those bacteria. As far as I as far as I understand the science today, you know you can get rid of them. A score of zero is the best score to have on them. So it's not like they're they're doing all these positive things, and then there's a side effect of TMAO. Uh, as far as I know, those things can all be filled in by other bacteria that won't make won't make that substance. That's really interesting. Okay. Um, and your stool test actually tracks all those the TMAO TMAO players. Are you? The thorn test does not do that in as much detail as I would like it to yet. Okay. And who are, can you just name a couple that I might be familiar with? We, the listeners might be familiar with. We had no a great, pressure. <laughs> we had a great version of it at Airdale. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure who else's test would do better on that. Um, honestly. Um, so I, I'm not aware of one that, that does it really well. We built that at Aravale when I was there. It's the mm-hmm. one, it was one of, it was like one of the very first things we did. Wow. Uh, we will have it on the next version uh, at Thorn because I moved here and I want it on there. And so, um, you know, so that that's coming out. Um, we'll you know, stay we'll, tuned for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the meantime, we'll measure, we'll measure TMAO. Um, you so there was a paper that came out recently that you were associated with. I know you didn't you were an author on it, but it, it but you were associated with it, and I know it, it's born out of work that you've been involved with forever. And it's a remotely coached multimodal lifestyle intervention for Alzheimer's disease ameliorates functional and cognitive outcomes. That this just came out. Um, so you're looking carefully at. I'm assuming that they were using the digital. I'm wondering if they were using the digital twin model. But I, but I, I want to just anchor that back to your book, where there's a pretty moving chapter that Lee Hood wrote about his wife and her descent into Alzheimer's. It's really moving. And then, you know, obviously, you, you, you guys go into, uh, you know, extensively your thoughts on, on what we need to do to preserve um cognition as we're as we're aging but anyway so tie that all together this paper is this using the digital twin and just you know appreciate the chapters in the book yeah so the the, um the paper is not using the digital twin um and that's partly be it's just the timing of these things so i I had a pretty big role in initiating and launching uh, the work that led to that trial but then when i moved from isb to thorn um, then I was less involved in the details of that trial. So I think I'm listed as part of one of the consortium members or something like that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so Jared Roach really let out that trial. 
And that trial wanted to try to keep things very simple. So it was, it, it okay. was, and it became remote during COVID. And at that point I had moved to, uh, to New York, I think well, during you know this period. So, so what they did was it, so it, it was, it was re remote health coaching, uh, dietary and lifestyle advice and brain training, um, you know, cognitive exercises basically. And so those things were used and what they were able to show was uh, very much like, you know, in the spirit of, of finger and, you know, and the more recent, like the four wins trial and things like this basically shows that you get more benefit from these kind of lifestyle interventions than any known pharmacological agent. And uh, it showed a, an ability to, and it but it was still just slow the rate of decline in those cases. It was almost flat. Uh, the mm -hmm. group that was treated, but it was slightly down. And then there was the untreated group that came down more. So again, just showing you know that uh, dementia is a lifestyle modifiable. The digital twin stuff was, and what's in that chapter of the book, you know, the, so there's Lee's story. Then the ne next chapter was really mostly about the kind of work that um, that we did on the digital twin models after I um, uh, moved to Thorn. Uh, that's the area where we really got into that. So it would be great if that trial were like the trial of the digital twins, but we were actually building the digital twin model contemporaneously okay, starting. Okay. with that trial. In fact, we started the trial earlier because um, the trial initially uh, was uh, going to be a straight up test of the Aravel program on dementia. Um, uh, and so it was kept to the same set of measurements that we were using in Aravel and the coaches. Uh, Jennifer Lovejoy was very involved in that uh, back then as well. And so that was the way that that was set up. And so I think it came out as, you know, another example that multimodal works, even if done remotely, the health coaching uh, mm -hmm. just makes a difference. And it gets into one of my real pet peeve topics, which is, you know, that for so long, especially when genetics first started coming out, people would repeat over and over again, don't go find out about your genetics because you'll learn you have high risk for Alzheimer's and there's nothing you can do. And that's such a lie yeah. because you know what, what was always meant by that is there is no drug that's approved that has any sort of useful treatment for Alzheimer's, which is true. But for prevention, you can do so much. And, and for people, yeah. uh, for listeners that are interested, I, I, you know, I did write this uh, piece for the uh, LA Times a few months ago on arguing that the return on investment or the, the focus on treatment over prevention in Alzheimer's has been really a disaster. Because we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars, at least, yeah. on especially anti-amyloid therapies yeah. and got almost nothing in return. And yet prevention is in a totally different universe. And I, and I do want people just to think about this. You know, Maybe it's obvious once you, if you do. Once you've lost your neurons and synapses, the notion that a small molecule is going to regrow them, bring them back, you know, totally fanciful as far as I can tell. I, I don't know what mechanism that would possibly do that. But prevention, keeping those neurons from dying in the first place, way easier, much more doable, very possible problem. And of course, we've all known this since we were three years old. This is the story of Humpty Dumpty. So it's like, it's not, you know, once it's broken, hard to fix. Keeping it from breaking is much, much more reasonable. And so I think that's the thing, you know, so coming back to that genetics, you know, find out, you know, in, in other words, it's not, don't find out your Alzheimer's because there's nothing you can do. Find out because there's so much you can do on prevention. And some of these are so easy, vitamin D, phosphatidylcholine, omega-3s, 
uh, you know, D, uh, DHA, uh, phosphatidylserine, exercise, oxygenation to your brain is massively huge. Get out, run, jump around, lift weight. <laughs> All this stuff makes a huge, huge difference to your brain health over time. And so that's one of the things I think is such an important message just to get out there is uh, Alzheimer's is not, you know, it's not fatalistic. There's not, there's not an infinite amount of, of room to push it off, if you, especially if you have the bad genetics. But honestly, if you push it off, I mean, some there's other things. This uh, I was listening to these um, lectures on genome writing from uh, flagship pioneering recently. Uh, an old colleague from grad school days, uh, Jeffrey von Maltzen, was talking about this and some other people. But you know, as that gets better, in our lifetimes, we're probably going to be able to rewrite your APOE4, and we can probably get rid of it. You know, we're yeah. You know, we're, have to see so you want to be doing all these things so you extend your time period because you know then your envelope could change radically you know you could get an apoe2 and all of a sudden alzheimer's is not going to happen until you're 100 or more and yeah you know we all know that there's that uh that possibility as we get onto these uh exponentially rising uh, improvements boy we are at extraordinary time in science and medicine god so glad we had this conversation. Thank you. I have a, I have a ton more questions. I, I, I will just have to circle Anytime. back. I wanted, yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you, Cara. Really, really great to be with you. I really appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. Not everybody can be a sponsor on my platform. I appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Rupa Health, Biotics, Integrative Therapeutics, Timeline, Mira, and OneSkin. These are brands I know and trust and use in my clinic and can confidently recommend to you. Uh, please visit them online and let them know you learned about them on New Frontiers. And if it's not too much to ask, consider leaving a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.